Hello listeners and welcome to Unboxing. I'm Lane Nooney. And I'm Joost van Drenen. And we're here exploring play and profit for the gaming curious, digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. Welcome to our second episode. Number two. Number two. We made it. <laughs> you know, still alive. <laughs> uh, initial feedback from the first episode. Uh, what did you get? There was a lot of encouraging talk. Like, yeah, this is amazing. You are not as smart as Lane, but smart enough to participate. Now, it, it was what, like, life-changing insights. No life-changing insights. It's just it's really interesting to see people give a shit. Like that's always no. It's nice. It's it's very nice. So you kind of like put yourself out there, and then people go like do more of this. Some friends, uh, some colleagues emailed us. Uh, we had some questions come in. So it's been overall pretty positive for me. You are the more famous one, so you right. tell me, did you get did you get cancelled? I, I did not. No, oh. no Reddit threads yet. And yeah, I think I think so people liked our vibe. That was some specific feedback. Our banter was strong. Strong banter. Uh, lots of comments that our audio quality was terrible. So I have done some things in the office. You've invested in equipment. I have I bought a cat bed that is shaped like a rocket and mm-hmm. so that is what the microphone now sits inside. And earlier today I learned how to do room tone noise reduction. So mm-hmm. hopefully this audio will not sound as shitty this week. Did you customize this cat bed? Yeah, I cut, it, I cut, it had a shallower opening, so I cut the top of it out, and then mm. I cut the pillow inside so I can nest it around the this microphone. Is, you are very crafty. This is, <laughs> I wish this was a visual. I had, uh, well, there's there are some pictures on my Twitter, and, you know, I do have a BFA. I was trained as a graph. I have an arts degree, as you can see. Yeah, absolutely. The color, this, this should be our logo. All right. All right. Um, weird stuff going on. Queen just died. That was strange. Like 40 minutes ago, Twitter exploded. You may have heard that sound. Yes. On my goddamn birthday. It's your birthday? It's, it's my birthday. So thanks. Burying Queen. the lead. <laughs> Happy birthday, Yost. <laughs> you know, it's like, I guess some people have to pull the whole attention to themselves, but it is my birthday. No, it's... <laughs> I know the Queen died and everything, but it's it's my birthday. <laughs> you know, it's just rude. Um, no, it's uh, something that, you know, you see it sort of flare up, right? And I have uh, plenty of contacts and friends over there. And they're like, she's in the hospital. She's being monitored, blah, 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 blah. I mean, the whole, that whole thing lasted like three hours, right? From, from me getting a push notification from the Guardian yeah, they that really she, she wasn't okay to... Close that out. Whoops. Quickly. Queen dead. You know, I mean, that's what you can wish for, but it's like, no, but if you're, if you're, oh, go, go quick. That's what you mean. Yeah, it's just like, don't, like, imagine being a monarch of a whatever decaying uh, social construct. Colonial empire. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of baggage there. Like, do you really want to just kind of flicker for three weeks, you know, on a bunch of machines in your, what is she, 80, 90 years old? 96. Jesus. That's so long. <laughs> long time i think uh jason schreier the game journalist over at bloomberg uh his tweet summed it up best for me when he said damn she won't even get to see the 23rd anniversary of the dreamcast and i was like this is the only take this is i was really struggling to figure out is there a game industry's angle to queen elizabeth ii dying i don't think there is so maybe games don't matter as much as we thought Yeah, that's good. That's good. I wonder how it's gonna change. What about like civilization? Are they gonna have to swap out? <laughs> oh yeah, is she? Is she the? I haven't played Civilization maybe since the '90s. Is she the head 
uh, ruler or whatever for... Well, where do you go now? Like, who's going to be the next one? And is that person going to be represented okay. in all those sort of historical games? Huh. I don't know. I wasn't aware she was. I don't know. I don't play enough of the... The I, the, the 4X games are a little creepy once you learn about <laughs> colonization, you know? This is like a mild sense of discomfort. Yeah, you're like, ooh, I don't know about this. Um... On to the class update, maybe? Yes, let's do the class update. You're so... You started. Following up with the class update. Yeah, I had my first class on Tuesday. I teach once a week, a big two and a half hour block. Oui. I did mine Thursday for an hour and change. And and your second class is today in a couple hours? Yeah, after this. On your birthday, so many... You know, NYU is making me work on my goddamn birthday. So many important... This podcast... The Queen. It's all coming together. Woo. I'm going to buy a lottery ticket later. <laughs> See, you never know. It's um, an interesting class because most of my students, by show of hands, uh, claimed they were not from Stern. Oh. So it's big. So Stern is the business school at NYU. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Stern is the business school, and the school, the class is housed in this particular school. Um, and one of the reasons was to do it there is because they have big classrooms and a growing number of sternies, as they call themselves, they showed up there. They showed up at the game center and now they had all these stragglers. They have a whole second row of unofficial auditing students. It's like, all right, this, this has to stop at some point. Wait, your class is uh, the classroom itself is that game center or the class? No, it used to be. Oh, okay. But they, they, so many people from the business school kept sort of jumping in and wanted to take it. So they eventually they started and invited to me to do it campus. here. Uh, for those of you who are not in the ass of NYU, oh. uh, you know, I, I realized <laughs> editing the first episode, I was like, we kind of need less NYU jokes. Uh, NYU has a campus in Brooklyn and a campus in Manhattan. And so the transit between mm. them can be a little weird. Yes. And so the game center, the game design department is in the Brooklyn campus. Yes. Uh, and then our programs are in the main campus. So you got to hop on the subway to get it's a whole back thing. and forth. Yeah, city, it's a whole thing. City University. It's annoying. I've had to teach a class in the Brooklyn campus. And it, you know. I used to bike from the East Village. It's really nice. It's a nice one. But so suffice to say that in my mind, most of the students would be business school students. And they were not. It was about 20% of them. And the rest were from all over the place. Tish. Gotten all these different programs that do media studies, theater, um, you know, stuff they make up in some cases. Gotten, they write their own tickets. So it's like, you know, people come from wide and far to bring some interesting perspectives. That was cool. Is that different from prior semesters? Previously, it was 80% Stern students with like a smattering of game designers, a bunch of media studies folk. What do you think? Do you have any theories? I think the cross-listing has finally been processed by the administration. <laughs> it only took six years or 12 semesters. Like I, somewhere it's actually showing up on the the business entertainment media minor list or something I see, like that? I imagine it's something like that, but I feel most... Maybe it's my kids discovering I you. think a lot of your kids are in there. And I... By the way, you call them kids. I'll call them students. I should call them students. Because they are not kids. children. But the... The difference now is like I see a demographic change. I don't know if you've experienced the same. So I started this class. It was 9 out of 10 or male or boys, whatever. Uh, and they were talking about the same three games most of the time, <laughs> which is wonderful and engaging. But after a couple of semesters, it gets a little uh, boring. So the shift since then has been now it's 50-50 uh, across sort of the two uh, 
extreme genders. <laughs> the the binary model of the gender. binary model to make it easy and the um, and the number of games that now make the cut when we have conversations is much wider. So it's not just role playing and sports games. It's much broader. When uh, did you start teaching that class? In its current format, like five six years ago. Okay. It started off as like a, a summer course, mm-hmm. which is you know sort of like a sideshow, and that was yeah. in the in the same program you are in. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that. By and large, since I've started teaching it here, I adjuncted an earlier version of this class almost 10 years ago. Uh, And it was definitely, I think, the demographic was more white, more male, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a more traditional understanding of games. But basically, ever since I've shown up uh, and I got this job starting in 2017, this is one of the most diverse classrooms I've ever been in. Uh, Actually, easily probably the most diverse class Mm -hmm. I've ever been in. Uh, Total gender parity. This is not a class where where guys dominate at all. Um, I've got plenty of, you know, like semi-pro female Overwatch players in my classes every semester. but yeah, my sense has been that the spread across the university has always been really big in my class. So I've always mm-hmm. been juggling students who are in our major, students who are dancers, actors, business students, game designers, engineers, programmers, the whole gamut. Because, And I mean, it makes the class a little funky because you can't guarantee that they have any baseline when they come in, right? Mm-hmm. I can't guarantee that they've taken the intro to my major. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of have to start from scratch in a sense. Yes. <clears throat> um, I did a thing in my class that I've not done before. So every, every semester I always have them do a little intro sheet where I just ask them some general questions about you know, why are they in this class and, and what are they excited about? I give them a chance to tell me if there's anything personal going on with them that that they would want me to be aware of in case it impacts their performance. But this year, I took those questions and I put them into a Google form and then I added a series of questions basically about their gaming consumption habits. So, Uh-oh. I, yeah, maybe maybe uh, at long last, Yoast is rubbing off on me. Uh, suddenly, suddenly I have data. <laughs> You're sir. collecting data. I have data. Now imagine 10 semesters in, you can do a, like a long-term. I can just quit this job because I'll be able sell it. Because I will have the cumulative data of 500 NYU <laughs> students between the age of 18 and 22 and that's all you need critical critical information (laughs) what does it say what does it say super interesting stuff so I asked them questions about like how many of them own a VR headset Uh, and it was about a tenth of no yeah it was about 20% of them so about 10 of them did Mm -hmm. out of a class of 50 I asked the stuff that I thought was most interesting was the stuff around their dedicated play devices Mm -hmm. so I said do you own a dedicated gaming device and so I offered them four options in that so the three main consoles the Xbox the PlayStation the Switch and I also asked about the Steam Deck Mm. Uh, the Steam Deck for anyone who's unfamiliar is a portable handheld computer gaming device it allows you to play games that you've purchased through Steam which is the main digital distribution platform for PC gaming and play them in a on a handheld device it has the form factor of a switch uh, you know screen in the middle controllers on the sides you can dock it to a television uh, but it's it's technically in the way the video game industry is organized it would be part of a different sector but I I'm like it's for in the way I was thinking about it, this is a device you own just to play video games. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to kind of capture it in the same. Do you have one? I don't. So I, I came very close to buying one. 
Uh, and I ultimately decided that I wanted to wait till the next gen of them came out. I was like, they're gonna, this is the pilot hardware. It's gonna be so much better when they release the new one. And all the news reporting we have on this already proves that true, mm-hmm. that the next one's gonna kick ass. And I was like, I'd rather, if I'm gonna spend $600 on this thing or whatever, I'd rather mm-hmm. have, thoughts exactly. let them get the kinks out. with the people who are most excited and then I want to buy a second or third gen one. I've got enough games on my hands anyway that that, I'm not dying for it. My number came up this week saying like, oh, yours is ready. Please send us all your money. And I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't rhyme any of it because it's six and a buck that I could spend on myself for my birthday (laughs) on something more meaningful. But also like there's, you know, I don't have a history that works really well there. Like it's, Steam is a different experience. I, I like to have the keyboard. So, a past. How many of your students had one? Eight. Eight. Eight out of fifty. Jesus. Which, I is the same number of students who have an Xbox. Whoa. That blew my mind. So, so the most popular dedicated gaming device is a Switch. Half of the students in that class have a Switch. Mm-hmm. So between amongst all. 50 of them, I think 49 actually filled out the survey. Um, There were 57 dedicated gaming devices, so quite a number of students own multiples. So uh, it's often a Switch and a PlayStation or a Switch and an Xbox. There was only one or two students who owned like all four. because that's that's a real money bag situation. The guy, situation. The guy wearing the fur and like this, <laughs> a crown, a little, a little excessive. King game. Um, but yeah, the switch was un- especially if you were only going to own one platform. Mm. The likelihood was that it was a switch, a Nintendo Switch, um, and. The I had no idea. I'm I'm very interested to see how this plays out in future semesters. Is the is the lack of interest in the Xbox an aberration, or is this generationally consistent? I'm gonna see if I can get them to talk about it next week. Why are so many of them on PlayStation? Mm-hmm. I my first console as an adult was a PS2, but then I switched to Xbox. I think maybe just because it was cheaper or easier to get my hands on one at a certain well, the point. PlayStation 3 was when the, wildly expensive. When the 360 came, so I bought an Xbox 360 and I've just been in that ecosystem ever Mm -hmm. since and the exclusives don't make a big difference to me and so I've always just kind of been like isn't this six of one and half dozen of the other if you're a medium player isn't this all the same shit Mm -hmm. Uh, and it seems like that is not the case for them there is a real strong preference so there were 24 kids with a Switch and then there were about 17 with a Playstation 17 Playstations in the class I was just stunned by how few students owned an Xbox that's That's amazing I uh, yeah I, I generally have the same ratios, but of course across the industry, like it's always a two to one for Xboxes and PlayStation. So uh, Sony will sell twice as many units consistently, for whatever reason. Um, we can get into that, but it's interesting to see how so many students manage to somehow get their hands on a five hundred dollar PlayStation Five, and I'm out here like a slob. I can't, I can't sell a kidney to get one. My, yeah, my friends are texting me. Yeah. How do I get a PlayStation? I'm like, girl, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I just got interviewed in an article about how you can't get a PlayStation. Yeah. Like, do, do you read? What the hell? <laughs> it's true. It's, no, that, uh, that was a different time, but it was um, the PlayStations are of course hard to come by. It's the Switch I totally get. That one is fun. It's portable. It has wide appeal. You know. I think I think the the combination of the strength of the Switch plus the prominence of the Steam Deck. The Steam Deck has been out for nine months, mm-hmm. and already almost a twenty percent of my class has one. 
uh, it really seemed to underscore for me, you know, the uh, an argument about, and I don't want to get too much into this, but you know, one of the the reasons I remain bearish on VR is I think it under, misunderstands the way that we play, and the, the students are sort of a uh, demonstration of that, which is that phrase. they. <laughs> misunderstands how we play. Okay, let's go. <laughs> the spatial politics of play. That those devices like the Switch and the Steam Deck, particularly because of their portability and their versatility, make sense for a generation of students who are dominantly living with roommates. They're living in cramped quarters. They have to share their, you know, what public space or shared space they might have in a in a living situation. They're mm-hmm. extremely mobile, right? They're, so they're going back and forth between school, um, you know, they're going home during breaks, they're traveling abroad. Why would you own a console if that's your yeah. life, right? And a lot of these kids, you know, uh, they're, you know, they work a bunch of different jobs. They're they're going back and forth between lots of different places. And <clears throat> this idea that VR has that somehow we're all living in three-bedroom homes and we have a living room and a den and a family room, right? Mm-hmm. That we have the spaces that can accommodate this kind of play. I feel like the thing that mobile should have taught us and that these sort of console preferences seem to teach us is that actually play on the go or the ability to take play with you in this very specific way and in this form is actually meets people's needs mm-hmm. in a way that I, I feel like this idea that VR is going to be the one ring to somehow rule them all is just a real mistake mm-hmm. about how a lot of us play in everyday life. Hmm. I like that. I like that explanation. I, um, I have my personal version of a lot of it would be um, traveling for work. There was a moment when I traveled way too much, but I could, you know, what, you, what I don't fully appreciate is uh, mobile gaming. So the answer was, I was like, oh, just bring your big-ass overpriced cell phone and play games on that thing. And it's not the same. First, because it needs usually an online connection, but also, like, I'm on that thing enough. Like, I need something. I like single-purpose uh, technology. You know, it, it, when I watch iPhone, yesterday they had the big Apple events. Like, oh, we're going to make this super cool thing, and it's going to do... guess what? It got bigger. And it's bigger, and it does bigger. many things. It's like, just, all right, all right. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's, I'm overwhelmed. And so, so six point seven inches. Well, the phone, it's yeah, taller than my hand. Like, yes, I was just at the Best I d- Buy. I don't checking. have big hands, audience. Sorry about that. <laughs> so she, so she claims, big handed Noonian has. <laughs> it's um, but so I don't like these these uh, army knife approaches where it has too many functions, and then it becomes mm. basically a sofa bed. Would seem like it's neither, neither sofa nor bed. It's. I don't, I don't know this. This. This, uh, I, this is my. This paraphrase. anecdote this, is. Is that the term for what you're about to say? When I'm sitting in an airplane, I don't want to have to use Excel and play my favorite game, and also calls family members and text. Uh, you know, deal yeah. with the team. That's too many things in one little tiny screen. It gives me anxiety. I like my game time to be, you know, comfortable and chill. So I like the dedicated. Um, devices that Nintendo used to put out. The 3DS was really a golden ticket for me because I could load it up with a bunch of stuff and just take it. Last only four hours. That's enough. Like they could plug it in, I'm good. The Switch is another one, you know, it travels really nicely. Incred- incredibly smart design. Just and then the PlayStation is just like this Hulk. It's like a motor bl- and there's like an engine that you yeah. bring with you to do something. <laughs> it makes no sense. Like you don't bring your blender when you travel. Gaming laptops are big and heavy and and yeah, you can't play them. On I, a try, I tried. I tried the gaming laptop. I tried to. I have a um, Razer Stealth Blade. 
This is 13 inch, it's the smallest four factor with the highest specs, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, a, it's a laptop. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty and it works. You know, I'm not a Windows uh, aficionado so much anymore, but I, um, I like it. It's just, you know, it's just another laptop. Now I have two laptops with me. Yeah. And an iPad and a phone and headphones. Like, what, and like I'm like, like a traveling you, salesman. You know, it's like, I don't want to do all this. <laughs> I want to bring less. You want one laptop, a phone, and a Steam Deck. I don't. I don't even think I want a Steam Deck. That's the thing. It's like I don't. Like Steam is not dedicated enough. Now I have to make decisions. Like the problem I've always found with these digital platforms like Steam, but there's also good old gaming and a bunch of other ones. The, the inventory is so great that I'm just sitting there spinning. It's just like Netflix. And it's like I'm just spinning the wheel of content. <laughs> like what am I going to watch now? What am I going to play now? I don't know. Like but I want that sort of determined for me. And when I play with a Switch. It's much more like these are your three options, or go to bed. All right, fair enough. <laughs> and so I like I like when you want the done you want me. the uh, the old school cable news era of, of video game content. You, you know, I, I want less decision making. Yeah. For my downtime, not yeah. That's not you know this this uh, was it the illusion of freedom, the illusion of choice. It's um. That was, you know, it's it is weirdly one of the things I enjoy about the Xbox Game Pass is at least there's a constraint. A hundred titles. Yeah, just yeah. just give me, you know, I have enough uh, quirky, intuitive preferences that I can begin mm-hmm. to sort through what I do and don't want to play. And maybe there's like five things I'm interested in. And at least then I'm not looking at everything on Earth. Mm-hmm. And I've just paid that one price point. To, to I, Netflix used to feel like that. And then it just barfed up all the content in the world. And mm-hmm. there's just too much of it to sort. But, yeah, but uh, like, you know, their job should be to make my life easier. Like, I'm not st- <laughs> it's a, Yeah, yeah I'm, that's I'm not... paying. Like, you, then you do the content. I do the consuming. But, like, you're making it hard for me to consume. Uh, yeah. What happens in your class today? Class today? Today is, well, it's, it's very much related to all this. It's the uh, digitalization of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Basically making the argument... That uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Spotify and its clever algorithms and Netflix and its amazing blah 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 technology distribution or whatever. And gaming never really gets the same amount of attention, and they are far more innovative. Uh, they got there earlier. Valve, you mentioned, you know, Steam is from 2004. Yep. You know, I was 12 <coughs> years old, and that was already a thing. So there is, in many ways. Uh, a level of innovation and development that takes place in gaming that you don't see anywhere else but music and film they get a lot more attention for it which always is so so in other words this second class is really sort of the uh, the relevant section for the whole semester like why should we give a shit about games and the business models around it so you, because you know it's sort of under so you you start you don't do like a chronology you you kind of start with a thematic like you try to pitch to them the relevance prompt. Well, the prompt. Yeah, so the prompt is not just oh, games are so innovative. It's, it's, so it's the 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 principles of digitalization mean that decision makers inside of content companies, whether that's games or otherwise, they have to constantly deal with uh, a changing ecosystem, different formats, different hardware specifications, different uh, market entrants, and so on. So. The hardest part in all that is not the technology or the content or the ownership of any of that, it's the humans, right? And so, in addition to the relevance, it's really about raising the question of what they, in business terms, call mental models. 
Right? A mental model is very simply described is whatever you think you need to be doing with your organization in the ecosystem that it is, with the competitors that it has, with your strengths and weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. That's how you make decisions. And so, so often, and for so much of my, at least my commercial career, I've been explaining to old-timey media executives that for less money here, they could get more results, better results than for the same money doing the same thing. But their mind, their mental model is like, yeah, but see, I already know this. And in six months, I'm retiring. I'm going to play golf this afternoon. So I'm not trying to break this thing on the way out. I'm just going to let it be. And so it just gets passed on. When, and so the absence of innovation or the absence of change in a lot of these companies is just risk aversion <laughs> from a financial perspective, but also the mental model where people have a hard time just embracing something new. And it's it's like they don't even recognize them when it lands. you know. And so that's, so that's sort of the angle of this particular lecture say okay every time something new comes around in gaming too and free to play is a good example people don't like it yep. you have take two Strauss Zelnick uh, the CEO for take two go out there it's like yeah that's that's garbage you know very clearly and openly and in no uncertain terms declaring that they don't want it and then you know, they buy he, sneezes, he sneezes twice, and now all of a sudden he makes 80% of his money with Grand Theft Auto yep. Online for microtransactions, and he buys Zynga for $13 billion. Yep. So people change their minds. And so what now is that process? That's sort of the uh, the whole conversation today. today. All right, very cool. What about you? My class is, you know, Historian's Dilemma, very chronologically organized in a certain sense. Uh, so I, So my first... My kind of first real lecture class, which will happen next Tuesday, <clears throat> is called the pre-commercial origins of the game industry, right? So so because the class is really interested in moving us through how games became commodities, I like to start with, well, where did games come from? How did the idea of a video game happen? Mm-hmm. And actually that history is a pre-commercial origin story but also the answer to that question begs the question of who had access to a computer Mm. so it allows me to kind of we start in the cold war you know buckle up kids right we're going back to 1950 uh i need to explain to you the post-war period Mm -hmm. um And we're talking a lot about the military-industrial complex. We're talking about how games emerged in these kind of elite enclosed spaces that only, you know, uh, defense contractors and university students and people with access to, you know, who are working in, like, various forms of basic research and military defense originally had access to, right? And and, and it's interesting because games emerge in those moments as these kind of creative aberrations, right? They they weren't designed... There is a history of kind of games as military simulation, but when we're talking about these older games, like ten, these games like Tennis for Two or Space War, these were things that people did kind of for kicks or kind of to see if they could do them. Mm-hmm. There's something really raw and expressive about that kind of creativity and the fact that it was all happening outside of a market. And so that's... I think that that military context really is useful for grounding where games come from in the history of the United States. And then we kind of transition to, um, for the lecture after, we will pivot into, okay, well, how did this stuff then mm-hmm. extend into a market? And so Nolan Bushnell is an interesting, the founder of Atari is an interesting figure there in that his first arcade game, Computer Space, is a ripoff of one of the first computer shoot-em-ups, or the first computer shoot-em-up. Uh, space war mm-hmm. uh, and that that was something he had access to because he was uh, hanging out around computer systems at Stanford he, he commercialized it and made it accessible and, and, and available to 
consumer markets. Yes. So when you say pre-commercialized, meaning it's just a bunch of people in labs with like it's just a bunch of people in labs, and you also it's not possible at that moment to commercialize the experience of using a computer because computers were too big. You just there was a literal scale problem. You could not use a computer in a personal way or an individual. That's not quite historically true, but you couldn't own a computer yourself. What, that, what year is this? I mean, seventies. So, 80s? so you know, nineteen um, sixties is dominantly. You know, Tennis for Two comes out in the late nineteen fifties. Space War oh, is a product wow. of the nineteen sixties. You don't begin to see you, the commercial arcade era begins in the early 1970s. Hmm. You also, right around that time, Ralph Baer, who also worked at one of the biggest defense contractors in the United States, BBNN, which was outside of Boston, he creates the Magnavox Odyssey, which becomes the first commercial home console uh, in the United States, right? So all of these guys, in order to have access to that kind of electronics and engineering knowledge, chances are you were somehow either working for the government as an adjunct for the government, or you had access to computing equipment through universities that also had government ties, like, like period, right? Mm. And so that that forms the runway into the rest of the semester. It also situates the context in which a lot of this stuff was happening, which means the social context, which was that who had access to this stuff? Educated white men. That's where the origin of game production comes from, and then we see the consequences that play out around that in different ways as, as history goes on. What then is the uh, dilemma in all this, historian? What do you mean? You said it's the historian's dilemma. Oh, it's the historian's dilemma that you think chronologically, right? Ah. It's that I want to unravel this for you as a narrative over time. Mm-hmm. And so the first half of the semester is... You know, it starts with those pre-commercial military origins, the arcade brick-and-mortar console industry, which at this point is is history, right? The mm. retail era of console production yeah. uh, is historical at this point. Yes. Uh, we do the history, the game histories of China and Japan, cool, uh, and then we do a segment on video game labor, and then there's a midterm, and then we get into what is digital distribution, right? How does the internet in the early 21st century break the way game production and distribution happens. To move into discussing industry news, top of the news this week in the game industry is undoubtedly Tuesday's reveal that the Chinese tech and entertainment conglomerate Tencent would be increasing its shareholder stake in the French video game publisher Ubisoft. Lots of words, lots of adjectives on all of these uh, terms. Ubisoft is dominantly known for developing game franchises like Assassin's Creed, Far Cry, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, and Tencent, for those of you listeners who might be less familiar with the workings of the global game industry, is actually the largest gaming company in the world. Uh, this always comes as a surprise to my American students, but yeah, it's not Nintendo, it's not Xbox, it's not PlayStation, certainly not Meta, not Google, it's Tencent. 
Uh, Tencent publishes a host of massively popular multiplayer mobile games in the Chinese market. Games like Honor of Kings, Game of Peace, adapts tons of popular games into the Chinese market. Uh, but a big part of its gravitational force, and this is where this is relevant for this news, is that it has been a very strategic buyer of non-Chinese game companies. So Tencent owns Riot, the maker of League of Legends. Uh, it owns the mobile game publisher Supercell, 40% of Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite. So Tencent is just this behemoth, a company I, I always feel like we don't talk about enough in Western game reporting. Um, but until this announcement this past Tuesday, Tencent only owned about 4.5% of Ubisoft shares directly. Uh, now it's putting up close to $300 million to expand its stake in the company, but there's a number of really intricate financial dealings that are going on here. That This isn't just an outright acquisition of Ubisoft itself. Uh, Tencent is putting up capital to, to obtain 49.9% of Ubisoft's holding company, Guillemot Brothers Limited. Uh, apologies for the rustiness of my French. Which is to say, uh, my French has never existed. Uh, I don't know how to say that name correctly. <laughs> Pre-existing French. <clears throat> That's right. Uh, Yost, I'm wondering if you can sort of take us through what's going on here. What are the nuts and bolts of this deal? The nuts and bolts of the deal. Uh, well, so the story, so, so there's two backgrounds. So you have Tencent, which I think you adequately describe in that it's... The largest game company. You, know, you always have to imagine, like, what if the biggest film production company in the world was Chinese? Or what? It, I mean, it probably it is. Probably is. <laughs> well, you know, so we think of these cultural institutions and these in these industries, like, oh, you know, of course it's Western. It's like, nah, it isn't. And so, Tencent has an interesting history for a few reasons. One of them is, uh, twelve years ago, that company barely existed. Yep. Like, it came out of nothing. So. As a digital newcomer, it is, you know, talk about mental models. You know, while the legacy publishers were kind of figuring out what to do with, like, the internet, Tencent swooped in and just bought everything and everyone and just blew it out of the water. And now it's $33 billion a year of games revenue out of, like, you know, which is roughly, like, a third or 40% of its business. So it's out of nowhere, becomes relatively quickly very big. Um, and it has everything to do because of its relationship with the Chinese government, right? The Chinese government has, unlike in European markets and Western markets, a much more protective market economy. Therefore, Tencent is able to grow uh, in a in a you know in a sort of sheltered circumstance, right? It doesn't have to deal with competitors. It doesn't have a lot of foreign influence or uh, you know people trying to eat its lunch. So Tencent gets very big. Gaming blows up at the same time because of mobile. So now it's, it's front row, has lots of cash, and it starts to look around. So what do we do? So Tencent, uh, and I've worked with them on a variety of different projects over the years. They are everywhere. So what we know is just a fraction <laughs> of what they're actually doing. Same goes for NetEase, for that matter. But these companies, NetEase being the second largest gaming company yes, in China, the, the, it, and it's you know by by distance, <laughs> but it's that's still I think six seven billion dollars a year. So you know, marginally smaller, still very powerful. They have not just a few studios, they have dozens of studios, like mm -hmm. up to 100, 200 studios easily. I mean, China is a mobile first market. Yes. Right? And that's. And you can correct me on this, but so China was also the place where a lot of Western firms would outsource their work, and then eventually a lot of those studios started making their own stuff. <coughs> I think it was more. I, I mean, it depends, I think, what historical period we're, we're talking about, but I think that was more like 
Taiwan, right? Like, I, I, I think the question of where that was happening, I think it happened in different places in the 90s versus the aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the, yeah, I'm not sure we want to get into the question of... Are, are you what, saying what Taiwan is... is... <laughs> what is part of China? Okay. Like, I'm not a geopolitics, geopolitical historian. <laughs> like... This is a this is a totally railroading man. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, but it's fine. But so so there's um, a different history than we've seen here before, right? If if, if we spoke earlier about how Western game publishers kind of came out of uh, in the military industrial complex. I mean, they know, have a legacy that's seventy years old at this point. Uh, yes, and Tencent is a company that is very much a tech platform, right? It became really first noticeable and very wealthy off of QQ, which is a chat program. So well, it's, and it sort of rose up in the vacuum that occurred when Google could no longer be the entry point to that's the... That's part of the market protections, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Right, so, so Google had to leave the Chinese market. Um, Everybody had a very hard time entering the Chinese market yes, from yeah. tech to content. And, and so I have heard Tencent sometimes described as like a, an indigenous telecommunications company, right? That's a fair way to say it. So they have now a problem, of course, right? Because you can't bite the hand that feeds you, but the Chinese government sees all these people playing games and go, ah, this is a problem. And so it starts restricting things. And the Chinese government over the last few years is, and this is this is sort of the publicly known part. So this is uh, probably only half of the story. But you have in 2019, the Chinese government deliberately slowing down the approval rate of titles published by Tencent itself, as well as its partnerships with uh, Western publishers, say, right? So you see a lot of delays. Fortnite wasn't available in China for a long time. PUBG wasn't available for a long time. At the peak of PUBG, it wasn't in the Chinese market because the government just wouldn't greenlight the whole thing and therefore they missed out on all this money. My estimates were like they missed out on like $3 billion in that one year just because the Chinese government was being you know, a total dick about it. And so the, because, you know, they wanted to assert themselves and I t- totally get that. And there's, uh, you know, culturally you have to be uh, uh, actively involved in these in these industries that grow very quickly. We see that here with Meta and Google uh, on our end, but, you know, to the detriment of some of these companies. So what a company does then, of course, like, ah, see that relationship that worked really well for us now doesn't, and we're going to, uh, you know, divert our risk. <laughs> we're going to, but let's do some risk management. And their thought, of course, was like, why don't we uh, also deploy capital outside of the Chinese market? So, yep. of course, that's a whole other uh, thing with lots of nooks and crannies. But the short version is they started investing. They started setting up their own studios. There's three AAA console studios being developed in North America alone. Um, they've bought everything that wasn't bolted to the floor. And Ubisoft is sort of the last legacy publisher that's available in that bunch, right? There is um, in that influx of acquisitions that happened over the last year, two years during the pandemic, <coughs> Tencent has increased its share. Like you mentioned, they also own a big piece of Epic. Um, so it's diverting a lot of its capital assets to non-Chinese markets for all of those reasons because it needs to grow and it wants to grow and it has the capital that, that it can deploy. That's the, that's the Tencent version. And then the Ubisoft component is uh, Ubisoft had, uh, as a French publisher, a strong connection with the French economy because, you know, part of it was subsidized and it was uh, partially owned by Vivendi, which was this, oh, that's right. this now, dream project from... Uh, Vivendi, Mitterrand, uh, there was a hot minute where Vivendi owned parts of Sierra Online. 
which is a company I've extensively researched in my own work, right? So it's Sierra Vivendi Endline. Vivendi was a big deal back yeah. in like the 90s. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's one of these lost histories that eventually one day I'm going to have to write about it in a book. But Exactly. Um, and it, it became, so Vivendi has the background that it became... So the French are very proud of their entertainment and media industries. Um, if you, I'm loving this European history. <laughs> this, oh, this is, so, I don't know this part. There's more. You know? There's more. Tell me about the Gimel brothers. <laughs> <laughs> the movie industry in France, for instance, when you buy a ticket for the latest action hero robot sci-fi flick, <laughs> a set percentage will go to independent filmmakers. That's, oh wow! That's how they subsidize, they, and you just pay. And so, like, even if you never watch anything that's whatever involves mimes or whatever they, call, <laughs> India, yeah, I don't know. That's 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 where it stops for me too. That's, that's so sane, right? That's so like. It seems it seems the appropriate thing to do is to divert some yeah, of the commercially to make sure generated the arts revenue. Can happen, you know. Everyone needs mime money. I think it's a yeah. Let the mimes pay for it, and it's the. Um, and so that same logic they applied to, of course, national and international media. So Vivendi was this French media conglomerate to kind of sit up there with the other international conglomerates. And so in Germany, you have Bertelsmann, you have the Berlusconi family in Italy, um, across the world, like it's sort of every <laughs> colonial empire wants its own media empire to go with it. And so the French did too. That was Vivendi. Vivendi took a stake in... Um, uh, Ubisoft early on, but not in a way that the that, that Ubisoft enjoyed. So over the last few years, put it this way, Ubisoft has been uh, had been trying to get out of this relationship, and it, it really was a rather restrictive relationship for them because Vivendi had a lot of say on their board. Um, until finally they freed themselves. And so Ubisoft comes out of this long-term abusive relationship with Vivendi. When did that happen? That was a few years ago, in like 2018. 2018. Is Vivendi still a thing? Vivendi is still a thing, but they stopped caring about games. Okay. And they're now really into telecom, so they're okay. trying yeah. to buy up like Italian telecom operators okay. and so the, more infrastructure. So they, they sort of extract themselves. They, spin, they manage to spin themselves out from... Yeah, well, they escaped with their skin, yes. <laughs> and so, but then, I mean, you have, there's there's always a personality interpretation here. So then Ubisoft basically is now creatively free. Mm-hmm. It makes some money. It has some franchise that, franchises that do well. It's not, it's it's well known, but it's not breaking the bank. Yeah, this, this, compared to the acquisitions we've seen mm. in the past couple of years. I mean, this is pretty small ball, you know? This is 300 million uh, compared to Sony bought Bungie for 3.6 billion. Obviously, the Activision uh, mm-hmm. acquisition is is going around 69 billion, right? This is... I uh, mean, is... If, 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 if what you're paying is 300 mil for 49% of a company, you're basically valuing it at 600 million? It's not... No, I mean, so... I mean, yeah, I shouldn't talk about stock prices. <laughs> I don't fucking know anything. <laughs> the, the, the valuations are like so. Say they, they buy shares, but then they get um, board seats and basically yeah. s- decision-making power inside the company, right? This is the big Mark Zuckerberg problem. Is like he doesn't have all the shares, but he's got preferential shares, and so mm-hmm. he gets to say what goes because he has fifty-one percent of everything, even though he doesn't own, uh, you know, all of that in in, in uh, regular shares. For Ubisoft, they ended up developing themselves creatively, uh, but you know it's still tough. They went from a market valuation of uh, twelve billion dollars two years ago to roughly half of that today. 
So, so they're valued at about six billion. Six billion, six seven billion. Last mm-hmm. time I checked, and it's a you know very respectable creative house. They have a large number of studios throughout France, but also in Canada. So if you ever go to Vancouver, uh, or Toronto, or Montreal, Montreal, you can't you can't meet anyone that, that either works there or has worked there previously. <laughs> it's it's really quiet. Uh, they have these like thousands of people working these buildings. Um, and they do a pretty good job. Assassin's Creed and Rainbow Six, those are those are great games. But you're always, you know, but they're not a take two, right? They're, yeah. they're, they are not capable of extracting the same amount of value. They're not able to convince the stock market that they're worth as much. Um, and so they look for capital in other ways. That's the short version. So Tencent came in, bought a bunch of pieces previously, and they keep up in their share. So you have to kind of wonder if the... Leadership, which is, by the way, it's a family-owned business, right? It's all brothers. That's it's four of them? Four of them. Four and, brothers. And they have a whole bunch Where's of... Where's that version of succession, right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> who's, who, how's that going to go? I mean, so you can always imagine, it's like, it's like a succession, whatever, like a, like a French, French version. But I digress. The thing with Tencent now, and they did the same thing with uh, Google, for instance, They've been coming out of this bad relationship with Vivendi, and they've run into a whole bunch of probably equally bad relationships with other big companies. So Google, with Google Stadia, with the launch, you see the CEO of Ubisoft absolutely at the front center in oh, the audience. That's right. With a big cheesy grin because he had just sold they a whole bunch of his inventory. Uh, Jade. Or Jade Raymond. Jade she, Raymond to she run. From, she was out of Ubisoft Montreal. Is that they right? hired her. Yep. Yeah. And then that's uh, right. I forgot about. I just blacked did. out about the Google Stadia. Well, so you know that is one example of where you see them, you know, going on a whole bunch of bad dates, right? So you come out of this Four bad, long-term bad abusive relationship, and then suddenly you go on this like on a string of bad dates, and. Why this now matters today is because Ubisoft sells off a, a few more shares to Tencent, but its stock price drops 17%. Yeah. Because people go, ah, okay, so Tencent is kind of like dating you on the side, but it's not committing to you fully. The idea, the thought, of course, during this moment of consolidation is that a company like Tencent would just buy Ubisoft outright. That's exciting for investors. That's what they put their money on. That's what they're betting on. The fact that it's doing it bit by bit is not exciting. It dis- why is that? Why is the idea that Tencent buying it lock, stock, and barrel more exciting than... They get a premium. You know, they, they give it a higher... Now they're just buying it at a certain price point on the market. Uh, so often do companies buy other ones and they say, we're going to give you X percent or this many pennies per share, more than what you're worth right now, uh, which is one of the reasons why the Unity app-loving conversation from a few weeks ago, when app-loving offered to buy Unity, they did so at a valuation that was lower than Unity values itself. Mm-hmm. And so that's not interesting. And so there's, yeah. there's no sophisticated math that you need to know that says that's never happening <laughs> he's like you know I'll marry you but you know the dowry will be two sheep and a goose we, we, we need we need to get out of this, this the <laughs> bottom of the pit that is this this metaphor sex marriage metaphor with this metaphor has been explored fully but it's there's a there's a there's a hit lo- the back wall quite literally you know I do my best every time but it, it ends, Ubisoft ends up having to deal with, from a financial perspective, like how do I raise capital to keep this going, and then at the same time mm. go to these partnerships. 
you know, they manage portfolio, but they do it across so many channels that at some point, you know, you have to wonder, it's like, if, if Disney hadn't pulled its content off of Netflix, it would have probably been at the same place. When you are the content owner, do you really distribute it wide and far? Right. If you if you recall, Ubisoft has a checkered relationship with Valve for that same reason, on and off on Steam constantly. Um, you, that's that's very tough for oh, that's investors. Right, there's Ubi Play. There's Ubi Play Ugh. and you play. Remember that thing. Ugh. And Ugh. consumers don't like it. Investors don't like it. And yeah. and, it's Cumbersome. Re- and acquirers they go eh, yeah. one step at a time. So so that's kind of where its creative freedom has not resulted in great big financial success. Is is there anything subtle in the fact that what Tencent is investing in is Ubisoft's holding company, not Ubisoft itself? Is 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 there any kind of financial nuance there that we should be grasping, or is that just like, uh, you know? financial intricacies that I don't understand. Oh, both of us don't understand it. Okay. Cool. Great. Keep it at that. It's a, it's, you know, it's an, it's an octopus. <laughs> eight arms? Tencent has many, many, many more than eight arms. Many, many more arms. Um, yeah. Was, I have seen some speculation that taking Tencent up on this was a way for the brothers, the brothers four, to block a larger takeover. Do you have any sense that that might be what's going on there? I, I don't, but the it's it's such, it's such a little like club, you know. Like you have to always wonder, like like what does a family dinner look like in a, in that situation? Like what do you talk about? Like and <laughs> is you know so it's you bring up succession sort of. From a, as a joke, but it's like there must be that kind of banter between those people. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, yeah. you, who knows what their what their inner psychodrama is? Their inner psychodrama, and you have to wonder, like, do, do family-owned entertainment firms always benefit from being family-owned, or is that just like you do, like a Rupert Murdoch? Is that going so well? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of arguing between the siblings. Yeah. You know, so so it's not necessarily the best way to go to build empires that way. Absolutely. I'm taking off for the weekend. I'm going camping on a tugboat that's heading up the Hudson. Ugh. That's that's the weird eclectic uh, hipster life I live. So we're gonna let Yost do the sound editing this time. I'm just gonna. Hope he doesn't fill all the musical transitions with whoopee cushion sounds. And oh, they have those? Sure, you can download them somewhere. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, let's do that. I look forward to it. Let us know how you end up on the other side of your boat I adventuring. Will. I'll, be, I'll be back here next week. and Hopefully. Hopefully I don't fall in. We've been getting emails. We've been getting texts, if you're lucky enough to know our phone numbers. We've been getting oh DMs. Don't Twitters. invite people. Uh, um, welcome to submit questions. That's a thing people can do. I don't. Welcome to leave reviews. I hear that's a thing people can do to podcasts. Please, please help us figure out what the secret sauce is as we yeah. go. Tell us what you don't like, what you do like, um, what to discuss what questions we should be thinking about that we weren't um, because it's a conversation I think both of us feel that way so don't be shy hit us up see you next week see you next week